0: The United States of America is paying, we're the largest contributor, and this is taking place. So look, I know you're here today to to share with us some of the progress that's being made. This is not you doing this, I got it. This is not directed at you. But I can just tell you, I am disgusted, disgusted by the reports. By the actions of U.S. peacekeepers that U.S. Tax taxpayers are paying for. And I hope that somehow out of this hearing and other hearings and other actions, it somehow we'll figure out a way to reel this in. Again, if I knew it was happening, if I knew they were going to Chattanooga, I would leave here immediately to protect my family. So with that being said, I look forward to this, I look forward to this hearing. I want to thank our ranking member for his desire and cooperation in having this. I thank you for your service to our country, Uh, but I hope out of that service, we as a nation will figure out some way of ensuring that the very people that are sent to protect people are not doing the dastardly, terrible things that they're doing to populations that are very vulnerable. Uh, Again, thank you, and I'll turn it over to our ranking member.
1: Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you for your passion on this issue. It's not the first time we've dealt with a problem such as this. Uh, this committee has taken, I think, the right position on trafficking in persons, uh, where the United States leadership has been instrumental in changing the attitude of so many places in the world where young people were trafficked for sex or for labor abuses. And uh, this committee uh, came in very uh, strong in oversight to make sure that the integrity of what we do in evaluating countries' progress on trafficking is not compromised by politics. And when you look at the United Nations, uh, we will not tolerate the United Nations under the auspices of the United Nations perpetrating these types of violence against young people, against anyone. So uh, I agree with you completely. I first want to underscore the importance of the uh, UN peacekeeping missions. 120,000 military and police personnel, overwhelming number performing their professional responsibilities in the appropriate way uh, with uh, commitment and honor, protecting vulnerable citizens from the South Sudan to the Golan Heights, 16 missions around the world, continents. Ambassador Power pointed out that the United States not only has a direct security interest in the UN peacekeeping missions, and we contribute, as the chairman pointed out, to these missions at a greater percentage than any other country in the world, but it's value for the United States. I think Ambassador Power pointed out it's like an eight to one savings to US taxpayers to be able to use the international United Nations peacekeepers rather than the United States having to fulfill that function. So there's certainly a very important benefit to the UN peacekeeping missions and the overwhelming majority of those who are in the, doing the work are doing it properly. But the sexual abuse by UN peacekeepers must end. Must end. Those who are perpetrators need to be held accountable. There can be no exception to that. Zero tolerance. And I must tell you, Mr. Chairman, you're right to be outraged, because we're talking about young children who are very vulnerable, who are poor, who have been subject to the most difficult lifestyles, being enticed by food or money to do horrible things under the United Nations. That cannot continue. there has to be accountability here and i the thing that gets chairman corker and me so concerned is the reports that at least initially within the united nations the response was fragmented and bureaucratic that it was not treated with the seriousness that it should have been treated that's hard for us to understand the entity that's supposed to bring world peace and stability condoning through their inactions, uh, those types of activities. So the United Nations passed UN Security Council resolution uh, last March. I've read it. It looks like an appropriate response. Will it be enforced? Will we be prepared, in fact, to repatriate all of the uniformed personnel from countries that are not doing what they need to do? in training their personnel before they're in theater to deal with sexual abuse issues, holding those who violate accountable, including prison time, or if not, they should not be part of the UN peacekeeping mission. Are we prepared to implement that? And I say that because, Mr. Chairman, there are shortages of personnel, There are more countries that are now participating in UN peacekeeping missions, including those from developing countries that may not have the same uh, access to to, to training. So will the United Nations compromise the safety of young people in order to meet the numbers uh, in the peacekeeping mission? If they do, uh, the chairman and I are going to do everything we can to make sure they don't have the resources to do that. We're not going to support that type of activity. So there can be zero tolerance. And I really do look forward to the discussion we're going to have with our uh, two panels today. And I do know that the people that are in front of us are working every day to make sure that the United States leadership makes it clear that we will not allow, tolerate that type of conduct. And we will demand that, particularly under the UN banner, that there be total accountability uh, and no tolerance for this type of activity.
0: Thank you, Senator Cardin. I uh, very much appreciate your service here, too, very much. Our first witness is the Honorable Ambassador Isabel Coleman, U.S. Representative to the United States for U.N. Management and Reform. Our second witness today is the Honorable Tracy Ann Jacobson, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Bureau of International Organizational Organizations Affairs. Our third witness is Major General Michael D. Rothstein, Is that, did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, Deputy Assistant Secretary for State for Plans, Programs, and Operations, State Department Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Uh, again, we thank you all for your service to our country. Uh, I think all of you know that uh, without objection your written testimony will be entered into the record if you could summarize in about five minutes. and um, I would say that uh, I know you all are very busy. Uh, to the extent you could hear the testimony of the second panel, it might be beneficial to you, but we thank you for yours here now, and if you could just start in the order that I introduced you, I'd appreciate it. Again, thank you for taking the time to be with us today.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Cardin and other distinguished members of the panel for inviting me here to testify today on this urgent and shameful issue of sexual abuse and exploitation by UN peacekeepers. Earlier this month, I had the opportunity to travel with Ambassador Power to the Central African Republic to witness the peaceful transfer of power to the newly elected president of that country. And in many ways, the trip underscored both the best and the very worst of UN peacekeeping. The presence of UN peacekeepers has been critical to staunching the ethnic violence in that country, violence that has led to the deaths of thousands of people and displaced hundreds of thousands of people. But as we all know, some MINUSCA troops have also been implicated in allegations of horrific sexual abuse, preying on the very people that they were sent to protect. During my time in car, Ambassador Power and I had the opportunity to travel to Bambari and meet with the families of victims. And their descriptions of the violence that their loved ones have suffered at the hands of UN peacekeepers were really powerful personal accounts that, for me, cut through the hand-wringing, The frankly, the excuses for why this scourge has been allowed to persist for just uh, too long. Sexual exploitation and abuse by UN peacekeepers is not a new problem. It has plagued missions from Bosnia to Haiti to the Democratic Republic of Congo to the Central African Republic. And let me read you just a short passage from an internal UN report documenting sexual abuse among peacekeepers. Some girls, I'm quoting, some girls talked of rape disguised as prostitution, in which they said they were raped and given money or food afterwards to give the rape the appearance of a consensual transaction. And these words, I'm sorry to say, come from the Zaid report in 2005. We know from the scope of current allegations now, more than a decade later, these very same offenses are still occurring, and despite years of UN leaders insisting on, quote, zero tolerance, a culture of impunity has been allowed to fester. When Ambassador Power asked me last year to lead our mission's efforts to establish a new paradigm for, ta- for really tackling this scourge, it was clear that an unacceptable lack of transparency and accountability were at the heart of of the issue. Yes, the UN published an annual report tallying the numbers and types of sexual abuses by mission, by peacekeepers, but under pressure from the troop contributing countries themselves, it withheld the nationality of the alleged perpetrators and that made it difficult for member states to take collective action on tracking the status of investigations and the outcome of disciplinary Um, action to hold perpetrators to account. And in short, without transparency, real accountability was at best, at best, inconsistent. And this finally is changing. And Senator, I share your outrage on this. To look back over so many years of words of rhetoric that has not resulted in true accountability is simply unacceptable. Last year, us led negotiations in the General Assembly for what I view as a breakthrough, finally, on transparency. We gained consensus among member states to support the Secretary General in his intent to name countries in his annual report, uh, those countries whose troops have allegations against them, a long overdue step. And as of early March this year, the UN is now reporting on its website, Uh, In in real time, it is posting credible allegations along with the nationality of the alleged perpetrators. And with this information, we are pursuing a comprehensive approach to track individual cases and follow up with the appropriate authorities. In March, USUN brought the issue of uh, sexual abuse, as you know, to the Security Council with Resolution 2272, another significant step forward for accountability. The resolution endorses the Secretary General's decision to repatriate peacekeeping uh, units that have demonstrated a pattern of abuse, which is a clear indication of insufficient command and control. And and the Secretary General um, is is empowered to repatriate all the troops from a mission, from a particular troop or police-contributing country, if it has not taken the appropriate steps to investigate allegations against its personnel, or has not held them accountable. Our goal is to see Resolution 2272 implemented fully as a means of powerful prevention by ending once and for all the culture of impunity that has persisted for too long. The other part of this strategy is to increase the overall supply of peacekeepers such that when military units uh, or contingents are repatriated, there are others that are well-trained and vetted, able to deploy quickly to take their place. The UN has come a long way in responding to this scourge of sexual abuse. With strong support from the United States, it has built up its investigative capabilities, increased training and vetting of troops, implemented greater community outreach to increase awareness about sexual abuse, instituted penalties for offenders, and is improving victims' assistance. But clearly, given the shocking scale and gravity of the sexual abuse incidents being reported from the Central African Republic and other missions, these actions by themselves are not sufficient to address the crisis. The UN's recent commitments to greater transparency and accountability must, it absolutely must result in a long overdue sea change that ends impunity. Our work is not done. We continue to make it our highest priority, both in New York and bilaterally, to see perpetrators held to account and sorely lacking integrity restored to peacekeeping. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
4: Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I'm honored to be here with you today to talk about this horrific issue that demands urgent, meaningful, and sustained effort. Sexual exploitation and abuse by UN peacekeepers is a cancer that demands the most comprehensive treatment possible and our well-justified collective outrage is only useful if it's paired with action. I begin by noting that the United States has long been a vocal advocate for increased transparency and accountability as it relates to allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse by UN peacekeepers. We are pleased that this push for transparency is finally starting to find its first traction. And while it is clear, as you note, that the actions taken so far by the UN and member states have fallen far short of the mark, certain recent actions taken by the Secretary General reflect a new seriousness and create important new avenues for member state engagement. Some of these steps include improved uh, reporting systems for victims and their communities, the creation of immediate response teams to collect and secure evidence for use in investigations, withholding of payments to troop and police keeping, uh, troop and police contributing missions for their staff that have been sent home under allegations of misconduct, and the creation of task force uh, in all peacekeeping operations on sexual exploitation and abuse. And I'll also note that in February the Secretary General took the unprecedented step of sending home an entire contingent from the Democratic Republic of Congo who had been working in Central African Republic based on credible allegations of exploitation and abuse. This is the first time that the Secretary General has taken such a step. It sets an important precedent and we believe it sends an important signal to troop and police contributing countries. We particularly welcome the Secretary General's action to identify the nationalities of those uniformed personnel who are accused to have committed sexual exploitation and abuse, including including this information online in near real time. Troop and police contributing countries have the ultimate responsibility for the discipline of their personnel. And by providing this information publicly, the UN can motivate these countries to do much better. It also allows member states to track performance, to recognize serious patterns of abuse, and to use our diplomatic weight to urge the UN to repatriate units that have a systemic pattern of misconduct, and to ban countries from peacekeeping where appropriate. This new level of information has also allowed us to direct our bilateral engagement where it's most needed. Last month, we launched an effort Uh, to reach out to every country on the UN's list in the Secretary General's report at senior levels to accomplish three goals. First, to make sure that they were aware of the report and the allegations concerning their troops. Second, to demand credible action in terms of investigation and holding those responsible to account, including through prosecution when appropriate, where crimes have been committed, and thirdly, to identify those areas where the United States might provide capacity-building assistance to help these countries better investigate and prosecute crimes involving sexual exploitation and abuse. I'd also note that the Secretary General's report included allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse against civilian personnel of the UN and different agencies. And based on that information, we are following up directly with those agencies to make sure that they take all necessary action. Mr. Chairman, any instance of sexual exploitation and abuse does very real damage to the credibility of the institution of peacekeeping, a tool that's never been more important for global peace and security and one on which the United States relies to stabilize conflict situations that could otherwise spiral out of control. Last year, the President hosted the Leaders' Summit on Peacekeeping and issued a new presidential memorandum reaffirming our strong support for UN peace operations and directing new efforts to strengthen and modernize these operations. These efforts are well-timed to bolster our actions on sexual exploitation and abuse. For example, new commitments uh, in the President's summit last year included 40,000 troops and police and this should send a message to troop and police Contributing countries that peace operations are no longer a seller's market This increased capability should allow the UN to prioritize better performing Troops in its deployments and also give it the flexibility to replace units potentially withdrawn for misconduct Mr. Chairman my colleagues with me today are well-placed to speak specifically to uh, issues of the reforms we've pursued at the UN and the training that we provide and the capacity that we provide to, uh, to peacekeeping troops in the field. I'll conclude by saying that by their very mandate, the vast majority of UN peacekeepers are serving under a mandate to protect civilians who are under threat of physical violence. Exploiting or abusing these same vulnerable people is appalling and an unconscionable Breach of trust, and we greatly appreciate the attention this committee is bringing to the issue, and share your outrage at what's been allowed to occur. Thank you. Thank
5: you. Thank you, General. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee. Thank you for letting me speak today, and I too, like my colleagues, very deeply troubled. about what brings us here today, and the things we have to discuss about these events and incidents. Among my duties at the State Department, I'm responsible for providing executive leadership for the Global Peace Operations Initiative. And I'll take just a moment to give you a little bit of background on that, and then I'll discuss its intersection with preventing sexual exploitation and abuse. GPOI, the Global Peace Operations Initiative, is our flagship security assistance program that focuses on building capacity for other countries to deploy peacekeepers to support United Nations or other regional missions. For the most part, it is a training and equipping kind of a mission, although we also focus on building their self-sufficiency to do training for themselves. And importantly of note, one of our key program objectives is to promote the role of women and to promote better better gender integration into their operations. GPOI has been very successful at helping other countries step up to their responsibilities for international security. It also allows us in our own U.S. forces to focus our military at other priorities besides peacekeeping. To date, the program has facilitated the deployment of more than 200,000 personnel to 29 different operations around the world. And today, GPOI partners, although they only comprise 40% of the troop contributing countries, punch well above their weight class by providing more than 70% of the troops that are forming those missions. Through GPOI, And through our diplomatic engagement, as my colleague mentioned earlier, we are working to expand the base of the number of countries and the number of troops that are available to the UN to support these missions. And I would echo what my colleague said, that we think this will help by having more troops out there raise the standard, not only for mission performance, but also for conduct and discipline. Now let me be clear for the record, I think I share the sentiment of everyone in here that each and every instance of sexual exploitation and abuse by any peacekeeper is absolutely unacceptable. Not only for the harm it causes directly, but it also fundamentally undermines the mission and the legitimacy of what's trying to occur. Now GPOI is very deliberately destructured to try to proactively address sexual exploitation and abuse. In program execution, we direct that all appropriate individual and unit training has elements of academics and things that go against sex, excuse me, sexual exploitation abuse built into their training. We do it, we start in the classroom, we move on to scenario-based training, and then we move on in our exercise-related training at both the individual unit and leader level. We pay particular attention to training leaders because we're keenly aware of the very important role that leadership plays and how significant positive impact of effective leadership can have downrange once they are in mission. And then GPOI also works to promote the role of women and to promote gender integration. We specifically seek out women as trainers because we understand the positive impact that can have. And over the past five years, the 50 active countries that are GPOI partners they've nearly doubled the number of women that they deploy in mission for UN peacekeeping. And to give you a point of contrast, the 71 countries that are not GPOI partners that that participate in peacekeeping, they've actually had a decrease of 16 percent of the number of women that are being deployed. So I'm very comfortable that GPOI is having a positive impact in this area and through that influence. Now while we're proud of GPOI's efforts to address this issue, And I do believe we are positively shaping behavior and outcome. No amount of training, no better gender integration is a panacea. As we know, there are far too many serious instances that still occur. And I, like my colleagues, am hopeful that recent UN policy changes to promote transparency will help. They've got to continue to follow through. And if a GPOI partner fails to follow up on those allegations, if they fail to take responsible action through their jurisprudence system, then we have to be ready as a nation to consider suspending our security assistance. We have to take a very deliberate decision in how we do that. In the end, well trained, well disciplined, well equipped units, they are the very building blocks to effective peacekeeping. And while there are many GPOI success stories out there, we are very also well aware that the track record is not perfect by any means and so whether it's directly or indirectly through ongoing training through expanding the role of women we remain committed for improvement overseas with the un with our partner countries to rid us of this scourge of sexual exploitation and abuse thank you for your time i stand by for your questions
0: we thank you all for your testimony and uh, Look, my guess is that uh, uh, y'all are as upset about this as we are. Um, You work in an organization that, uh, whether it's at state, uh, certainly at the UN where trying to make something happen is almost impossible and uh, my sense is you probably do welcome a hearing like this to highlight the problems that exist. Um, My understanding is that the the level of violence, sexual abuse, the kinds of things that are happening to vulnerable people that we're supposed to be protecting is actually much higher than is reported because the very people that are out there, quote, 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 protecting populations are also protecting, in many cases, the human rights workers who may in fact be reporting this. So would that assumption, uh, uh, Ms. Coleman, be Ambassador Coleman be appropriate that, that in fact, the reporting levels are far lower than they otherwise would be because people are out in the field, uh, these peacekeeping folks are there to protect them too, and there are concerns about uh, when they're in the field making reports.
2: Thank you, Senator, for that question. I think that uh, you're absolutely correct to make the assumption that Uh, levels of reporting are below what they actually are. Um, I think it's for a variety of reasons. Um, I think that what we're seeing in the Central African Republic, with a lot of the allegations coming to light now, in particular parts of the country, are because uh, the security situation is improving and we're now able to send more people out to some of these remote areas uh, where you have had a single country contingent, which in and of itself is a risk factor, which the UN is now recognizing, that in remote areas we shouldn't have single country contingents. So I think you're seeing an improvement in security, which is allowing people from the community to feel more safe and comfortable to come forward and report abuses. And what I can tell you, uh, Mr. Chairman, is that I think in the coming months, we're going to see more allegations coming to light. I don't think we've nearly seen the end of, of this problem. As the UN shines a spotlight uh, on this issue, we're going to see more allegations, not fewer.
0: Which countries are the ones that are the worst? Name them.
2: You know, I wish I could say that this was just a a couple of countries, but what we are seeing is that it runs the the full gamut of countries, from countries with uh, seemingly very well-trained and equipped, uh, disciplined troops. I mean, the the French forces, the Sangharis forces have been named uh, to uh, countries, uh, Burundi, uh, Gabon, the Tanzanians and the DRC. Uh, the DRC troops themselves, uh, the Moroccans. There, there's, there are many, many countries that have these allegations. Uh, so I can't point a finger at one being particularly bad. Uh, we do know that in the Central African Republic, the contingents that have been repatriated were the troops from the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And they were repatriated because there was a pattern of I got it.
0: Abuse. I just... I, I need- I apologize. I've got to get uh, yep. things in within a certain time. I've got a whole list of countries here that it's beyond belief it, that some of them, Germany, it, Germany, um, other countries. Uh, let me ask you this, do, do, do y'all all, if I could ask a personal question, do y'all, have you all had kids? you all have family? Would you, Mr. If, you, German, if, I, you know, I, if you know a UN Security a UN peacekeeping mission was going to your neighborhood right now, would you not have the same response I had that you would rush home to protect your family from the peacekeepers? Would that be your response, honestly? Would you please tell me?
2: Mr. Chairman, I have five kids. And when I was preparing for this testimony today, last night, and I had to talk with my daughters about what I was doing and what I would be talking about. It was a very difficult conversation. What I can also tell you is having just recently returned from the Central African Republic, I am so thankful that my children are being raised in the United States and uh, and in a, in an environment where rule of law is primary and in the Central African Republic, I met people who are the victims of sexual exploitation and abuse. Their families have suffered it directly. And I asked them that question. Would you prefer that there were no peacekeepers here? And I actually, I didn't know what the answer would be. Ambassador Power and I sat together with them. Would you prefer, given what you have experienced, that peacekeepers return home? And they, all of them said no. What we want is we want accountability. We want justice to be served. Uh, but Let we- me ask you this. What,
0: what, is, what is wrong with the Secretary General of the UN? This report was written, the one of the, that you referred to is, is 10 years old. What, what is wrong with him? What is wrong with him? I mean, is he just so inept, inept that he can't cause a, a body like this to keep this from happening? over and over and over again and we're just now beginning to, to put processes in place what is wrong with him
2: what i would say mr chairman is that those processes have been put in place coming out of that report a decade ago but they have never been acted upon That's in the my way point. that they must well, be acted
0: upon how, how do we put up with such inept leadership at the united nations and how do we do that
2: i don't think it's ineptitude I think it is a reluctance to take on the, um, the opposition of troop contributing countries that don't want to deal with this issue in the transparent way that it must be dealt with. Well, let me ask with you that. We have,
0: a, we have a law here called the Leahy Act, which says when we know of things like this, we withhold money. Have we withheld money?
5: So, Mr. Chairman, I I cannot give you an example where we've held money for these things. The good news is, is up until recently, we didn't have the kind of visibility that we needed to be able to pursue these things. Now certainly, with the Leahy Law, when we have credible evidence of individuals or units, uh, then we go forth not to do security assistance with them anymore. And that is out there and all the units that we train already, we vet through that process. So any of the training that we've done has been vetted through that Leahy vetted process. What's good about what is happening now and should have been happening sooner, I think we would all agree, is that now we are starting to get more information coming in from the UN that we didn't have access to before. And that's going to allow us to do this better than we've done it before.
0: Let me just – I'm going to – we may go to a second round with you all, but uh, I look at the list of countries that are violators. Most of them are – many of them, let me put it this way, are countries that receive aid from the United States in other forms. I don't understand why we continue to send money to countries outside of the UN. That allow this type of abuse to take place. So I don't think we're using the leverage that we have. Um, We, I think, should be withholding payments to the UN until this ends, or doing some level of reductions. But it doesn't seem to me that it it, it seems to me that this is not that important to the UN, or they would have done much more about it over the last ten years. By the way, those people you talked to. I would say we're somewhat fearful to tell you they didn't want them to be there with UN officials being in your presence. But uh, I just don't think the United States is using the leverage that we have, not at your level, at other levels, uh, to stop this. And um, I think the UN is, is, uh, I think, in great jeopardy. Uh, of building enough critical mass around here where severe penalties should be taken against them with, reholding, with withholding of funds from them because of their ineptness, their lack of concern, their lack of care after 10 years to continue to allow this to occur. So. Um, I, uh, I hope actions, and plan to be a part of actions being taken against them because it's obviously uh, something that's not very important to them, otherwise this could have been stopped a long time ago, ineptness, lack of a moral compass, lack of concern for vulnerable people. Uh, Senator Cardin. Uh,
1: thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I want to um, first thank you all. And I mean that. This is not easy work. And we appreciate your commitment and passion to get this right on behalf of vulnerable people globally. So, so thank you for your commitment. And uh, I do acknowledge the fact that we now have more information than we had a year or two ago. I, uh, my staff has given me a copy of what's on the UN webpage on uh, th- those who have been uh, the allegations of, uh, of s- sexual abuse it looks like approximately, uh, since tw- beginning of 2015, a hundred, I'm running, rounding, it could be 90, but somewhere in that range, uh, of, uh, specific episodes involving about the same number of victims. Uh, and of all those cases, I went through it quickly, only four have been finalized with any jail time. And, and I also point out that the what the chairman said, that these are the reported cases. We know that in some countries, the seriousness of this issue, even though it's globally acknowledged as being the worst types of conduct, but in some governments, in some countries, it's not considered to be a serious issue. And that means that the reporting is gonna be spotty in some of the missions, and then the pressure that's uh, that on the command structure has always been there. We saw that in the US command structure when we were dealing with trafficking with military facilities located in other countries, not participating, and it took some while before we were able to change the culture. So we know that also is a problem. But my specific question to you is, it's one thing to get the Secretary General to withdraw the mission if they don't do certain things, and I'm all for that. The two sections that I see in UN Security Council Resolution 2272, which was just passed last month, so the Chairman's absolutely right. This has been going on for a long, long time, and we finally got a UN Security Council resolution passed last month. Uh, Section four deals with gathering evidence, but most of that section deals with how you deal, rightly so, with victims and making sure the mission is well-trained, et cetera. And then Section 9 says urges all member states to take concrete steps aimed at preventing combating impunity for sexual exploitation. What are we doing? What is the United States doing? What is our leadership doing to make sure that those who have perpetrated these horrible acts are going to end up in jail?
4: Thank you for your question, Senator. It's a very important topic, and I think you've hit on something that's key here. We've talked a lot about what the UN is or isn't doing, but the crux of the matter is what are the troop and police contributing countries doing to hold those who have perpetrated these horrendous crimes accountable? Based on the new reporting that we have of nationalities, we finally have a tool that allows us to go to those countries to see what they're doing, to urge them to do better, and uh, I think you've mentioned the four cases from last year that have gone through the whole process. There are at least another 20 uh, where trials are occurring now, 20 trials in the Democratic Republic of Congo that that government is conducting uh, against uh, peacekeepers who have been accused of this. Also, uh, uh, the uh, Republic of South Africa has an on-site court-martial that's going on right now. So we're starting to see the actions taken that these countries uh, know now, that we know what they're doing, we know where the troops are coming from, and that we're gonna continue to shine a spotlight on these issues. We've sent in our missions to all of these countries uh, just last month. Uh, This was the subject of high-level discussion with our ambassadors who were all back here in Washington last month for the Chief of Mission Conference, and we've been very clear With countries that we've gone out to, that this is not just one sort of discussion, that we are going to be coming back regularly to determine what they're doing and and holding their feet to the fire. So
1: let let me just underscore the point that the chairman made. I, I support U.N. peacekeeping. A lot of taxpayer money goes into U.N. peacekeeping. U.S. taxpayer money goes into it. I have a right as a senator to know that Section 9 of the UN Security Council resolution is being enforced. I don't believe that the countries that have people who have perpetrated this, some of the countries, will follow through with this requirement of combating impunity of making sure that the perpetrators are held accountable and are serving prison time. So what are you gonna do to provide me with information on how we are doing in every one of these countries that have perpetrators as to how their system of justice is handling this acceptable to international standards.
4: Senator, it's uh, very important that we continue to follow up with each of these countries in a repeated way and we're doing that and we're happy to provide you at any time with the results of our conversations with these I I
1: want to be a little more proactive. I want to know what you plan to do working with the members of Congress to keep us informed in a timely way as to how every country that sends peacekeepers to countries, the systems that they've employed to deal with those who have perpetrated these types of acts. I want to make sure that no one's being left. I mean, first of all, I don't think we have enough. I don't, I don't think there's been a, a, the, 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 I, I think we have to be more proactive, the United States, in making sure those who are victimized have an opportunity to come forward. I think we have to be more direct with the political structure in the United Nations to make sure that every country perpetrators are identified so that we have by country what is happening and that we follow every particular case because, quite frankly, I don't have confidence in their system to provide justice, international justice, not U.S. justice. And I think the more transparency you can put into this, the more important it is. So you're gonna, I want you to come back to me, this committee, and tell me what we are gonna be receiving on a regular basis as to what's happening in every one of these countries in holding the perpetrators accountable and how those trials are going forward and whether in fact you can say with confidence that they've taken steps to prevent impunity for those who've committed these crimes. Will you do that?
4: Yes, Senator, thank you. In fact, we have already started an exercise to do just this. Um, There's a whole team of people behind me that are engaged in this on every day. We are putting together essentially What we wanna do is combine the new transparency that we're getting from the UN with with our own information that we get from our embassies in the field. And we are preparing uh, what we call a data call, but it's actually an effort to go out to all of our ambassadors in every country that hosts a peacekeeping mission uh, to answer a series of questions based on our own observations, our own engagement, our own analysis, Uh, so that we can bring that information back to Washington and do exactly what you say to make a determination about whether the countries are doing the right thing or not.
1: So, So, Senator Corker and I, we need to talk a little more about this, but the Leahy rule, which is one that I support, indicates that we don't give aid to countries that don't adhere to basic international standards. And to me, holding those accountable for these atrocities, these types of activities, would be contrary to international norm. So you're going to have to help us draft the appropriate type of oversight that will make sure that countries understand that they must act to prevent impunity for the perpetrators of these crimes. Understood? Yes, Senator, understood. Otherwise, we'll draft it, and you may not like the way we draft it, so I'll just warn you.
4: Uh, understood and uh, we're working to, uh, for example, in uh, the current year's author is, I'm sorry, appropriations language which does require the kind of certification that you're describing and uh, we're looking forward to working with you to put that information together. Thank you.
0: Senator Isaacson.
6: Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate both you and the ranking member focusing on this. You know, I, and I appreciate your compliments to the UN about transparency and, and finally making some moves but you know putting in a year-end report how many violations of human rights there were in terms of rape against women and, and it's not much transparency and putting it on the website is pretty good but a lot of these people who are victims wouldn't know a website if they saw it because they're in very remote parts of the world and I, I want to echo what Senator Cardin and Senator Cork have already said I, I completely come from where they're coming from in terms of us in the United States holding these people accountable in some way, if, if not the least by withholding funds or withholding funds until they comply with, nor- with human rights. But here, here's the question. When Senator Corker and I went to Darfur and Senator Coons and I went to the Congo, one of the many things I learned is that rape is a military tactic in Africa. It's not a violation of the law, they teach it. That's right. We, when we went to, to Darfur, you didn't see a man younger than, I mean older than 12 or younger than 72 because they all had fled. Every woman had a baby and I'm talking about women who were 45 or 50 or 60 years old or at least had weathered and endured so much pain they looked like they were that old. Because the the armies that come in to invade the towns rape the women to break up the family unit. The men leave, they take the son with them or the son is conscripted into the army. And it's an ongoing process. I mean this is a this is a big practice and I'm not just picking Africa, but it's one place I know where it takes place so much. And unless there was a significant consequence of United States funds, and this may address your organization, General, that you're working on, we're just whistling in the wind because these people are taught to do it. So I just want to make that, that one a question, that was kind of a statement of awareness, which brings me to the question. General, is there any status of forces agreement that you know that is required or otherwise put on the burden of any country that supplies peacekeeping troops to those countries? Any status of forcing for the legal accountability to which those peacekeeping troops will be in the in, in the event they commit a felony or a crime?
5: Thanks for the question. I may have to defer a little bit. I know there is uh, a memorandum between the country and the troop troop contributing, those countries that go to a certain mission and the country that they're working in. But I do not know the details of that to be able to unwrap that further for you. So I don't know if, if I could turn it over to you, Ambassador.
2: There is a memorandum of understanding and there's a, a model memorandum of understanding that's negotiated every three years. That negotiation is coming up in 2017 and strengthening the provisions to be very explicit and incredibly direct on sexual exploitation and abuse is is one of my goals for for that uh, upcoming negotiation. Off of that model MOU, then there are specific MOUs that are negotiated between the troop contributing country and the UN. Senator what I can tell you is that this is not a problem at its core of lack of words on paper. This is a problem of political will. And it's a, it's, a, it's a problem that has persisted for too long, where words on paper have been ignored. Words on paper have been disregarded. So even within the existing MOUs, the TCCs have not abided by that. And now we, we will not tolerate that going forward. Which
6: underscores the point I want to make. As long as these troops, many of whom are in an army that was trained to use sexual violence as a tool of war, are deployed as a peacekeeper, if if they realize they're exempt from any accountability for legal enforcement of a law in the country that they're in or anywhere else, then there's nothing to thwart or hold them back. However, if all of a sudden, because of the initiative the United States takes and other peace-loving countries take, we start holding people accountable, sentencing people, and people start serving punishment in time for rape or violence against women or whatever it might be, then the world will get out really fast. I mean, we governments are great at story, and the UN is the best at making agreements, putting words on paper, but not the very best at make, putting those words to, to work in life. So I, my my point is, if we could get to some sort of status of forces agreement between countries that supply UN troops and the UN, or require an agreement between them and the country that they're deployed in, and have a concrete, not a not a you must in 90 days establish a pattern of practice or establish a fund. Uh, status of force, it says, you will be liable and you will be punished for rape, for murder, for whatever capital felonies we want to include in there, the most egregious of which, and then do our best to aggressively make a couple people an example of it until that sort of thing is happening. That and withholding money are the two things that will get these guys' attention. The rest, the, we don't have anybody's attention right now, none whatsoever, and, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's a frightening, frightening thing. And I think the, the GPOI, which is an agency, which is a division of the State Department, right?
5: Yes, sir. That's a division that, uh, under my leadership.
6: I would hope you would meet with uh, Bob Froman, the trade representative for the United States, and start seeing, finding out whether or not some ways you could tie a country's compliance with fighting violence against women with the agreements we make with them in trade and commerce. Senator Coons and I... Open the markets in South Africa for domestic United States chicken, which they were being blocked from by just enforcing the terms of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which is the trade agreement between the two countries. You know, people don't like rape and they don't like violence, but they sure do like to eat and they like to have commerce and they like to have trade. And if you predicate participating in those things, in the United States and them doing it, with them being committed to ending violence against women and sexual violence as a, as a practice, then we can start going a long way towards making something happen. That's the kind of leverage that really makes a difference. I'm not belittling the annual report, I'm not belittling the website, but I'm telling you it's one thing to tell them your names on a website, it's another thing to tell you you can't trade anymore. Okay. We, we've gotten the countries in Africa to change their labor laws in order to get into compliance with AGOA. We've had to start importing chickens from the United States in order to participate and trade under the AGOA agreement. It would seem like to me the State Department ought to try and find ways it can leverage what you're trying to do in GPOI with some of the benefits we do on a daily basis with countries around the world who may provide peacekeepers and see where you couldn't tie the two together. Then all of a sudden, you've got a big stick. And until you got a big stick in some of these countries, you ain't got nothing, pardon my English. So I would just suggest that would be one way to look at making an economic impact in return for better behavior by some of these host countries.
0: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Before going to Senator Coons, you you mentioned the political resistance or the what kind of political resistance exists to keep soldiers from raping and abusing uh, young girls and young boys? Uh, What kind of resistance do you face at this United Nations body?
2: The resistance, uh, Mr. Chairman, is over giving up any control or jurisdiction with respect to how issues of conduct and discipline are handled by TCCs themselves, by the troop-contributing countries. What th- they have resisted our efforts to increase transparency on these issues out of fear that it would dishonor their troops, that it would uh, dishonor peacekeeping. But what I can tell you is that the dishonor and what I say to them The dishonor is in not being transparent. The dishonor is in not prosecuting credible allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse to restore integrity to peacekeeping. And so I I think what you're seeing in a positive way today is that there is no longer a monolithic resistance on these issues. I think there are troop contributing countries that recognize that, the, that we, have, we face a crisis. Yeah. And they recognize that simply circling the wagons and saying no to transparency and no to accountability is actually undermining peacekeeping, is undermining their own integrity. And Good. so we, we've seen some progress recently on that front.
0: I would just point out on the list, I know most members have seen the list, but a large number of the people that are violators In the peacekeeping mission to make money. Let me say this one more time. They're in the peacekeeping mission to make money. Um, So I'm sorry. Um, uh, I can't imagine how political resistance could keep us from enforcing against these countries that make money off doing this uh, in this particular situation. but Senator Coons.
7: Thank you, Chairman Corker and uh, Ranking Member Cardin for both uh, convening this hearing and for your persistence, your voice, your engagement of both of you in fighting human trafficking and fighting to end human slavery and for the passion and engagement you bring uh, to making sure that we don't just hold hearings uh, on the deplorable conditions uh, of the victims of sexual abuse and violence around the world, but that we actually do something and get something done. In this particular instance today, we're talking about UN peacekeeping, uh, and I I wanna thank all of our witnesses uh, for your testimony today of of both panels, but especially Ambassador Coleman, who I know is uh, working hard to try and institute uh, real reforms in the UN to make it a more effective institution. I just last week uh, went to UN headquarters in New York and met with the UN Under Secretary General for Peacekeeping Operations, uh, Hervé Ladsous, Uh, and was struck by the dawning challenges that peacekeepers face in the 21st century, uh, by uh, the number of countries where we've got UN peacekeepers deployed, uh, and by um, the possibilities uh, of peacekeeping in terms of protecting fragile uh, countries from falling into being failed states. Uh, And I have strongly supported UN peacekeeping efforts in terms of appropriation support and uh, view it as a cost-effective and a positive way for us to not just keep peace but build peace. But the allegations that have been made, not just in CAR, but Ambassador uh, Coleman, as you've outlined, across dozens of different UN missions across decades now, uh, are simply shocking and unacceptable. And it is the United States that is footing most of the bill for most of the peacekeepers who are committing these atrocities against men and women and children. And if the very people who we are funding, training, equipping, supporting uh, to be peacekeepers can't be trusted to keep the peace and instead are committing crimes, then our support for UN peacekeeping is at risk of doing more harm than good. Um, So I think we all agree we have to act, not just listen, not just take notes, but act to bring an end to sexual exploitation and, and abuse on a wide scale by UN peacekeepers. But simply providing peacekeepers and police doesn't fulfill a member state's obligation um, for the UN community of nations. It is the responsibility of member states to select and train and oversee um, appropriate units. And it is a struggle as um, the chairman was just recognizing many of the peacekeeping contributing countries are deploying peacekeepers, at least in the countries that I've traveled to with Senator Isaacson, in part in order to get their troops paid. Um, we are not attracting the best and most capable and most trained uh, peacekeeping forces from around the world and we need to strengthen that. But before we make progress in that, I think we first have to institute meaningful accountability for nations and their peacekeepers who commit these kinds of uh, crimes. So I look forward to exploring together ways uh, this committee can help Ambassador Power and her team at the UN push for accountability that is meaningful and that can work together to end these crimes and to change peacekeepers from perpetrators of violence to protectors against violence. Uh, So um, if I would, uh, Ambassador, just tell me what peacekeeper training methods have proven most effective so far. In fact, I'd like all members of the panel, forgive me, to answer this question if you could. What's been successful in terms of training um, to reduce what Senator Isaacson, I think, correctly uh, recognized uh, is the training, whether intentional or by experience, of many of the troop contributing countries that Sexual violence is being used as a weapon of war. What is the training that is most effective uh, at preventing that, and what can we do to strengthen that training in combination with accountability, if you would, in order, please?
2: Thank you. Well, I I, I will allow General Rothstein to answer this specific training question, but if if you would allow me just to say, I want to reiterate a point that uh, General Rothstein made earlier, which is, this is not fundamentally about a a training issue. I mean, there is no training that is going to guarantee that this problem won't occur. And when you look at the troops that have committed these abuses, some of them are among the best trained troops in the world. And we know that they have explicit components of sexual exploitation and abuse uh, prevention in their training methods. So ultimately, I come back to this as an accountability issue. There is no troop-contributing country that is immune from these types of abuses, it's how they deal with them and how they deal with it in a fulsome way that provides prevention going forward. And um, and then before
7: we turn to the training question, since we've got you Ambassador Coleman on this, how effective is naming and shaming? Since a number of the countries involved and implicated uh, are close allies of ours uh, who have troops that are trained and perform at the highest level, then we'll talk about training for those uh, who lack operational excellence or efficiency. You're right. I think accountability matters first before training. How effective is the naming and shaming um, that we are advocating and that we may work together to strengthen?
2: Uh, Well, thank you, Senator. And I I like to avoid the phrase naming and shaming because I see no shame in being named. The shame is in not following through with accountability. I think it, is a, it really is a, a watershed for us to be able to identify the countries and then f- to be able to follow up directly with them and, and not tolerate, not allow uh, uh, the, the passivity that has existed, the, the um, sweeping under the carpet that has existed, frankly the, the, the lack of accountability and to not allow it anymore and Senator Isaacson earlier talked about having a big stick. And uh, Mr. Chairman, you've talked about money. Uh, the, the money is a big stick. And to be able to say that you will not participate in peacekeeping any longer if you do not hold your troops accountable, if you do not report back to the Security Council, to the Secretary General on what you're doing, if you do not prosecute these allegations in a in a, in a full and sufficient way. I mean, that that is ultimately the UN's big stick because, the troop contributing countries will retain jurisdiction over their troops. They can either choose to have a full appropriate response or not. And if they don't, then frankly, they should no longer be part of peacekeeping.
7: I couldn't agree more. And as someone who has fought for the appropriations for peacekeeping, I'm ashamed that we've been supporting peacekeepers who are doing horrible things and want to make sure that working together we find a mechanism for accountability that is appropriate and that uses the fact that we are one of the principal contributors to peacekeeping support to ensure that this comes to an end. General, what sorts of engagements, accountability are most effective for troops, whether training or prosecution or otherwise?
5: Thank you very much, I apologize. Uh, So let me start by echoing what Ambassador Coleman said. My perspective is that training is absolutely necessary, but make no mistake, I do not think it is sufficient. This is a problem that is much broader than training. And I believe we have to train. Uh, Through the training we provide through our security assistance, we think it is pretty good. And as far as best practices of that, what we work to do in our training, we start in the classroom. We moved to scenarios. We moved including in exercises. And we also focused very much on unit leadership. And we draw on the best of breed. We work very closely with the United Nations to find the best practices that work well. We make sure they understand their policy. But all of that, no matter how well you do it, will not be sufficient. And so I would echo what Ambassador Coleman said. We have to focus on accountability. And I'd also echo that we have to focus on how the country is falling up. Just because you have a rotten individual or maybe even a rotten unit does not mean you necessarily want to disengage from the whole country because as we remain focused on future outcomes, if that country is still going to deploy to UN peacekeeping and we want to affect it for the better, then we probably want to be involved in their training and help make it better and not walk away and let it deteriorate. Those are the difficult decisions we
7: have. I'm I'm past my time. I I just want to say I'm looking forward to the second panel where we're going to hear, frankly, about UN um, suppression of whistleblowers and the real likelihood that these abuses are far more widespread than has so far been reported. Thank you for your testimony and your hard work on this topic.
0: I would just say that on this issue, there ought to be some way for us to figure out a way to surgically uh, deal with this in a bipartisan manner that... uh, that gets at this issue and not bringing in a whole host of other issues but we ought to to be able to figure out a way to do it. Senator Flake is going to go ahead and ask Senator Shaheen to ask her questions. Okay. Thank
8: Thank you all very much for your testimony today and for the work that you are doing on a very difficult issue and I want to follow up Ambassador Coleman with what you said about how important it is for the UN to actually hold um, countries accountable and to ask, has that ever been done? Do we have any examples of where that has actually occurred and we have seen a change in behavior? And if that's the case, why haven't we instituted a a process whereby that's done on a regular basis?
2: Thank you, Senator Shaheen. The UN has, I think, consistently followed up with the troop-contributing countries, brought when allegations have come to their attention, they have documented them, they have presented evidence that they've collected to the troop-contributing countries, they have followed up with the troop-contributing countries, and too often have met with silence, and frankly, have acted with, timidity in pushing back on the TCCs and demanding action.
8: Well, And, and that's the question that I'm really asking. Have, is there a case, can you cite a time in the past when the UN has demanded action, if the troop-contributing countries have failed to act, where we have denied them funding or for conti- continuing to contribute to peacekeeping efforts? We,
2: I know of a number of examples, and some of them have happened, frankly, with U.S. urging. Um, I can tell you that uh, the Uruguayans in Haiti had sexual exploitation and abuse allegations. Um, We knew about them at the time. Uh, There wasn't a website. This wasn't published, but we did learn about it. We engaged bilaterally. We also engaged at the UN. And the Uruguayans did take action. They, in fact, held quite a public trial in Montevideo. They flew uh, victims uh, from Haiti to the trial. we know um, that the UN has engaged with a number of member states who have been responsive. Uh, when I was in Minusco last year in the Democratic Republic of Congo, I learned about the South Africans and how uh, one of their, their force intervention brigade had had a number of allegations. The UN brought it to the highest levels of attention in the South African army and they dealt with it. They had court-martials. So it does happen. The issue is that it doesn't always happen. And too often, they simply get no response from a TCC. And when that happens, if we don't know about it, or if another member state doesn't know about it, I, it falls through the cracks. It's well, totally unacceptable.
8: Well, one of the issues that's been raised is that there's no person or agency that's responsible just for this. and. What is it the assessment of the panel that if we had a person in charge of just um, making sure that when there are allegations that troop contributing countries are taking action to hold people responsible, would that help solve the, the problem?
2: You know, the, the, the independent car panel report in excruciating detail uh, cataloged how information was diffused, um, fragmented, uh, the bureaucratic response that uh, uh, so appalled us. Uh, in response, the UN has appointed uh, Ms. Jane Hall Lute as a special envoy to deal with this issue of sexual exploitation and abuse, and, and we welcome that appointment. And we think that will certainly help um, f- uh, provide a focal point within the UN so that there can never again, be an excuse that uh, the diffusion of responsibility allowed critical information and it to fall through the cracks and inaction to occur. Um, so we, we absolutely welcome that.
8: And has she taken any action yet?
2: She is just recently appointed. I know that she t- right now is traveling. Uh, she's been in the Central African Republic. She's in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I think you will see action coming out of her Um, for for her office in uh, in short order.
8: Uh, Senator Cardin and Senator Corker both mentioned the Leahy legislation that would have the United States um, deny assistance. Is this something that has been done in particular instances where there have been documented cases of sexual exploitation and abuse? Have we actually seen the United States um, deny aid to those countries who have failed to take action?
5: Certainly, when we have credible evidence, you know, of those things that fall under the Leahy laws, uh, at the individual and unit level, uh, when we have that information, that goes into our database that we work both through uh, the mission at POST and country, when those individuals and units potentially come up for security assistance with the United States, uh, as well as the databases back here, at State Maine. So I don't have a specific example, but if there is someone who has those credible allegations against them and they would go in that database, then we would not work with that unit or individual and that process is in place and has been in place. Uh,
8: Well, I guess I'm asking a, a broader question and that is not just about the unit or individual, but have we actually denied aid to countries that have contributed troops to peacekeeping missions who have failed to take action with those Troops on allegations that have been shown to be true.
5: At the overall country level, we have not suspended, to my knowledge, an overall you know country. Should it, we?
8: Should we consider that kind of action if we see repeated um, abuses and a failure to take action? I, I'd like each of you to respond to that, if you would.
5: Sure. I think we absolutely have to be ready to consider that. I think it's important we take that on a case-by-case basis. And as I said earlier, from my perspective, it is not so much that an incident happens, it's what the country does about it. And if the country lacks the will to try to follow through on that, because no matter, like I said earlier, incidents are gonna happen, we're not gonna stop that. And so to, if the country takes reasonable action to follow through, then we probably ought to continue working with them.
8: Right, no, I'm I'm actually asking if they, If they fail to take action, should we then look at suspending aid? Um, Ms. Jacobson?
4: Thank you very much, Senator Shaheen. Uh, It's an important question because we do have to think about the leverage that we have in our bilateral relations with countries, but I think we have to look at it in a holistic way. For example, most of the assistance that we provide to countries in Africa is in the health area. Uh, We're not in the business, as you know, of giving out freebies uh, because we want to feel good. We're in the business of providing assistance that meets critical U.S. national security needs. So you'd have to weigh uh, whether or not it makes sense to cut the assistance that we're providing to prevent uh, the spread of pandemic disease in response to a country's inability to deal with sexual exploitation and abuse. In other areas, we're providing assistance uh, directly to support the rule of law system and the development of capacities to enforce law. I wouldn't want to cut that. I might want to sort of redirect how that is used. So it's something, it's a tool. It's not necessarily the tool of first resort. You have to look at what the assistance is directed to. And then make the best determination. We are trying to do that now on a case-by-case basis through our engagement with the countries that have been named in the report, and that's an ongoing conversation that we will have um, in conjunction, of course, with all of you,
2: Ambassador
8: Coleman.
4: I would
2: I would just say that if there if if countries are not responding and not taking appropriate action, they should not be included in UN peacekeeping, and therefore, our contribution through our peacekeeping assessments uh, should, should not be going to those countries. So I completely agree that, you know, U.S. engagement to strengthen these countries and make them better in improved capacity building, training, vetting, all of these things are, are great. But if there is a willful non-responsiveness, they should not be part of peacekeeping and our money should not be going to them.
8: Thank you. Thank you all very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, very much.
9: Um, Can I ask you, General, how we deal with the countries from which the soldiers come? Um, On the one hand, we're talking about training of the soldiers, but does the country itself need training? Does their judicial system need training? Um, Do we need to have a program that goes the step before these young men who are the soldiers and get to the adults who are in these countries and ensuring that they have the proper training so that they are taking the intervention steps necessary early on uh, or else those people are made accountable in their country, those are the people who we have given the training to and are not then acting. What is that uh, program that we may or may not have in place in order to ensure that the proper training back in the home country is
5: adequate? Senator, thank you for that. And you you raise, I I think, what's both important and a very hard topic. So as a general rule, I think, on our security assistance, uh, in my experience, uh, doing tactical training, training units, pre-deployment training uh, is hard, but we're pretty good at it as a country. Helping to build those institutions that backstop all of those tactical and operational units is much more difficult. It's intellectually more difficult, I would tell you. And I should also, you know, I will remark I just came out of a year of Afghanistan where my, my job was to build the Afghan Air Force. So I was living on an Afghan air base trying to build their institutions. So I have a, I've lived a little bit of this myself, and it is hard work. And we do have some programs out there where we are trying to get after that. Uh, within the State Department, we have a, a program called the Security Governance Initiative that is taking out a kind of a pilot level looking at some of these countries, how we, have to, how we get after the institution building that has to backstop this, the rule of law, some of those things. Uh, the Defense Department, I, I don't want to speak too much for them because I certainly don't know, but I know they are also working some of the defense institution building programs. So those are some of the things we're trying to, to work. Uh, but it is difficult, it will take a long time because change you know in our own bureaucracy, think how hard it is to, to make change happen much less when you're trying to work through a foreign government, through their cultural norms and values, so we're gonna have to stay at this for a little while.
9: Right, but I don't think you can solve the problem until those leaders in the justice system in the home countries uh, have the proper training and gumption uh, to enforce the laws. These are just young men on 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 the prowl in a foreign country and that's a dangerous thing without proper supervision back home. So let's just talk then to whatever, from your perspective, you would like to see put on the books. What programs would you like to see funded, um, You know, short of defunding of programs, I guess, in those countries, to teach them with a stick uh, what we could potentially try to uh, have them except as a standard by the proper educational standards, the proper accountability standards that are put in place without us having to punish the country.
4: Uh, Thank you very much, Senator, for that important question. And uh, I just wanted to include the thought that when we started our effort last month to go out to every country on the UN list, this is part of what we were asking them. First, we wanted to make sure that they understood the gravity of the allegations against them. Second, we wanted to impart on them the the critical importance of actually following up on these. And third was to open a dialogue about what that country needs in terms of assistance to build up its own ability to investigate and respond. Now, those conversations are at an early level. We only got the country-specific information last month, but we're going to build on that. And those conversations that our ambassadors in the field are having now are going to feed back in to our decisions about what kind of assistance we can provide, including in the rule of law area. Uh, But I would like to echo uh, what my colleague, Ambassador Coleman, said, that where we have an open door and a willingness to engage in this, uh, we should do it. Uh, Hopefully, we'll be funded to provide that kind of assistance. Where countries are not willing, where, um, as you say, where they don't have the gumption, Mm -hmm. uh, those countries should be barred from peacekeeping altogether, and I believe that the resolution in the Security Council that our New York team fought so hard for last month, 2272, provides for that kind of banning from peacekeeping of those countries.
9: Okay, so great. So let's, let's talk then about the countries that you think are the worst. Like give us the worst three countries, um, any one of you, so we can just get an idea of what we're talking about and kind of prioritizing, not alphabetically, but in terms of their complete and total lack of regard for these human rights violations. How would you list those countries? Want to give us the three worst?
4: Uh, I will will, uh, refer to my colleague, Ambassador Coleman, who previously said it's really hard to say who's the worst and who's not the worst because we're only now in a world where we can identify what countries are doing. Before, we didn't have that information. And um, Ambassador Coleman may disagree with me, but well, I- we have we have
9: countries here: Congo, Morocco, South Africa, Cameroon, Tanzania, Benin, Burundi, Nigeria, Togo, Rwanda, Ghana, Madagascar, Senegal, Canada, Germany, Slovakia, uh, Slovakia, and Moldova. Um, you want to pick three, and uh, and if you don't want to put in Canada, you don't have to. Or. Uh, Slovakia perhaps of the of the shorter list that's left you might want to just give us an idea of where this problem is and then it'll focus our attention much more precisely like laser-like on what we should start with we should probably start with the worst and uh, <clears throat> and then uh, we can all know what we have to have as a project in order to teach that country how much they should care about the issue so would you like to try that ambassador
4: um, I would just say in the case and um, what you're saying is, is very important. We need to identify where the problems are, and we're just starting to be able to do that. Uh, we are looking at a case like Democratic Republic of Congo. Obviously, the allegations against that particularly contingent in MINUSCO are absolutely horrific. We think the Secretary General did the right thing by sending them home. They are not in peacekeeping anywhere else, nor should they be. But at the same time, as part of this uh, new focus on these issues, we have seen now that the Democratic Republic of Congo has uh, detained 20 of their peacekeepers and has started trials against them. So what we need to see before we can make a judgment is where do those trials go? Uh, Several of the countries that you mentioned uh, have started judicial processes or in some cases actually finished judicial processes against those peacekeepers who, who were accused. Uh, so it's I would say it's too early to answer the question as to who is the worst because we haven 't seen well
9: you're saying Congo is there as a as um, as a uh, as a country that has already received special attention. Yes. Are there two other countries that you might want to tell us if you're going to prioritize as a country where we should be focusing that you think have been particularly bad in this area well,
2: uh- Senator, maybe I can just um, comment, uh, adding to what Ambassador Jacobson has already said. Congo, the DRC troops were repatriated because of a pattern of abuse. Mm -hmm. There were so many abuses that they were repatriated. Uh, In addition, the Republic of Congo, so not only the Democratic Republic of Congo, but the Congo Brazzaville, the Republic of Congo troops were also repatriated, again, because of a pattern of abuse. There are two different things going on. One is a pattern of abuse, which speaks to a lack of command and control. And the other is a pattern of non-responsiveness. On the pattern of abuse, uh, I think as allegations become uh, apparent and and we are tracking those allegations, it's easy to see when there has been a pattern or it's easier to see when there's been a pattern of abuse. In terms of non-responsiveness, we're only now understanding which countries, because they're only recently being named, have allegations that have been pending for a long time, where there has been inadequate follow-up, inadequate um, uh, accountability. And so in that process, we're also looking at which of the, which are those countries. And uh, we don't have an answer for you. And we will get back to you with that answer.
9: Okay, I think that, I think it's important for us to know, you know, when you're looking at what, there's 100 nuclear power plants, these 10 are the, least safe. Well, we're going to focus on those first, right? So you have to narrow it down for us because as Senator Cardin is saying over here, you know, we've got an ability to uh, begin to think creatively uh, about all of the other relationships that we have with that country uh, that can help to get the leaders who um, General Rothstein is saying maybe are reluctant right now to have their judicial system uh, fully engaged to make sure that they are accountable, uh, that these, these soldiers are accountable, that the, the military officers are accountable.
2: And we look at it very much in the same way. Yeah. That is the analysis that we're doing and- When will you
9: have that list put together as to who are the worst and, you know, because that would be a great hearing to just have, you know, the, those worst offenders focused upon by the committee.
2: When you're asking worst offenders, are you talking about highest incidence or non-responsiveness?
9: Uh, Well, I I suppose it's going to be a combination because the ones who are least responsible are the ones that are just turning a blind eye to the atrocities being committed. So I'm sure it's one and the same for the most part.
2: Uh, Not necessarily. And that's exactly what we're trying to um, untangle. I mean, there are some uh, countries that have had um, pretty um, significant allegations against them. As Ambassador Jacobson said, you now see the Democratic Republic of Congo putting 20 people on trial, uh, and so taking quite an aggressive action about that, Um, you know, we want to, it's very early stages of that. A lot of times it takes, in fact, um, quite a long time for these things to work their way through their their judicial system. But the point that I want to emphasize is that having a weak judicial system, having a judicial process that perhaps doesn't meet our standards, our rule of law, um, is no excuse for not taking action. There there is not one TCC that has deployed to a UN peacekeeping mission that doesn't have the ability to impose discipline on their truth. We're
9: agreeing with you, and I think what Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Codin are saying is we want to help you. Mm-hmm. We want There is no excuse. So you know, you just tell us who they are, who, who what their excuses are, and then we will try to reinforce it, because there is a power of the purse, which the Congress does have that I think can help to focus their attention on issues that we'd like to see them work on. So uh, we well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. If I could just
1: just to clarify, and I, and I think this has been a very helpful exchange. If I understand, Ambassador Coleman the United Nations can discipline a country that doesn't take appropriate steps by denying them the right to be a TCC. That's And that has been done. And the UN resolution speaks directly to that. The problem if they're non-responsive on a, impunity, there doesn't appear to be any direct remedy that the United Nations can take other than uh, the uh, peer pressure or, or public um, um, uh, information that's made available. And that's why I think we're looking for ways in which we can help in regards to getting action taken in regards to impunity. I just really wanted to clarify yeah. that because I, I think we there are the two points that you had raised before. Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I still say it's pretty unbelievable that we had a report in 2005 and you just now, not you, the entity we're trying to reform, the UN, just now is publishing information. I think it speaks to, I'm sorry, uh, terrible leadership, lack of concern, uh, unwillingness to to deal with with tough issues, and I don't think it speaks very favorably of the
3: leadership at the UN. Senator King. Um, Just really one line of questions. in the Security Council resolution from last month, and I applaud the U.S. and, and the other nations for taking it seriously in the council, were there provisions dealing with uh, redrafts of the MOUs with the TCCs? So should there be a standard feature of the memorandums of understanding that that talk about you know, training, recognizing training isn't sufficient, but then what the um, accountability provisions would be in the uh, kind of complaint, and if, if that's not, part of the Security Council resolution, is that a profitable area that we should focus some time?
2: Uh, thank you, Senator. It It is not part of the Security Council resolution because those decisions are not taken up in the Security mm-hmm. Council, they're taken up in the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier that the model MOU on which all the MOUs are based is renegotiated every several years. It, it will be up for review coming in 2017, and it is absolutely an area that is ripe for uh, for review for making stronger and more explicit actions uh, regarding sexual exploitation and abuse.
3: As we work on maybe some a bipartisan and focused uh, strategy, you know, strong demand that that MOU, when it's renegotiated, can include uh, very significant provisions around this is something that I think we would all probably agree with that's the only question I have I appreciate it
0: thank you other you want to follow up with this panel um, listen we uh we're all very uh, upset I think you are too um, I know that typically the administration doesn't particularly appreciate input from folks who sit on this side of the dais um, I think in this case um, Maybe they would welcome that, and uh, I do look forward to looking with working with members on both sides of the aisle to figure out a way to put additional pressure on. I have to tell you, if I had to go to work every day and deal with uh the morass that exists at the United Nations, um, I think I'd have to find other other lines of work, so we thank you for attempting to to deal with this morass um, that is so ineffective in so many things, but particularly this. But we thank you for your efforts. Uh, we appreciate uh, your efforts in trying to make sure that training is done at a better level. I appreciate the work you're doing at the State Department. We we do want to assist you in penalizing countries that tolerate this and don't do the appropriate, uh, don't take the appropriate action. So we'll be working with you very closely over the next several weeks. Uh, with that. Uh, uh, we hope you have an opportunity to hear what the witnesses say on the next panel. Um, we'll hold the record open until the close of Business Friday if you could fairly properly respond to questions that may come your way in writing. but uh, We thank you for your service to our country and for being here today. Thank you. Yeah.
1: So you're not interested in the of the United Nations, it
0: looks like? No. <laughs> I don't even like going into the building. So. <laughs>
1: Thank <laughs>
5: All right,
0: so we're uh, ready for the second panel. I know we've all been looking forward to your testimony. Um, most of us had a chance to, to, to read it last night or this morning, but we uh, thank you all for being here, and I'd like to uh, recognize uh, the three witnesses, Dr. Miranda Brown, um, who uh, has very power, powerful testimony, and Mr. Yo. did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, thank you. Um, And if you could just begin, Dr. Brown, and then Mr. Yeo, if you would move on, we thank you both for being here and for uh, the strength of your testimony here today. Thank you.
10: Good afternoon. My name is Miranda Brown, and I'm a former Australian diplomat. I joined the UN's Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights as the Chief of the Eastern Southern Africa Section in December 2012, and occupied this position until December 2014. I have first-hand experience of monitoring and reporting human rights violations, including sexual abuse in a peacekeeping environment. I'm going to give you an insider's perspective. From my experience in the field as the chief of the Eastern Southern Africa section at OHCHR, I know that sexual abuse in peacekeeping missions is vastly underreported, with bottlenecks for reporting at various stages. There are multiple barriers to reporting sexual abuse. Victims, many of whom are minors, know that there is a high likelihood that perpetrators will go unpunished and fear discrimination, stigmatization and retaliation if they report abuses. UN human rights officers in peacekeeping missions are usually the first responders and hence the internal reporters of the sexual abuse. They have their own fears, both about their physical safety as well as their own job security. Overall, my view is that there are significant structural barriers to reporting sexual abuse by peacekeepers and UN personnel. The current setup, which relies primarily on UN human rights officers assuming the role of reporters of these violations, is inadequate, poses risks to the victims and staff, and is inherently biased against reporting. Such barriers are exacerbated by the wholly inadequate UN internal justice provisions or protections to whistleblowers. An example of these structural barriers is the case of Mr. Anders Compass, who disclosed sexual abuse by peacekeepers in the Central African Republic to the French authorities on the basis that the abuse was ongoing and the UN leadership in Bangui had not taken any steps to stop it over a period of many months, or if they had, these steps had been ineffective. The abuse continued until July 2014, when Mr. Compass disclosed it to the French authorities. In April 2015, Mr. Compass was suspended and placed under investigation for his disclosure. Shortly after, I blew the whistle to US officials at the permanent mission to the United Nations in Geneva about the child sexual abuse in the Central African Republic and the apparent abuse of authority by the UN leadership in respect of the treatment of Mr. Compass. Despite the fact that his suspension was deemed unlawful and an external panel established by the Secretary General exonerated him, Mr. Compass remained under investigation until January 2016. These actions are having and will continue to have a chilling effect on the reporting of abuses in peacekeeping missions and have badly damaged the reputation and stature of the United Nations. While the UN Secretary General has announced measures for tackling sexual abuse in peacekeeping, these do not address the structural barriers to reporting. Nor provide protections for UN staff who report wrongdoing by the institution. These measures do not address the U- UN internal accountability for abuse of authority. Ambassador Coleman has referred to the dishonor in not being transparent. This should apply to the UN leadership. Many of the measures that you've heard today should apply to the UN leadership because 70% of the abuses appear to have been committed by non military i.e. UN or non-military personnel. I recommend the committee consider the following. From the UN leadership, demand that all victims of sexual abuse by peacekeepers are offered immediate protection. That is not currently the case. Recognise and address the barriers in reporting sexual abuse by peacekeepers and UN personnel. Issue UN system-wide procedures and provide meaningful training to all UN staff working in peacekeeping missions on reporting sexual abuse by peacekeepers and other UN personnel. Institute mandatory reporting of child sexual abuse to the appropriate authorities. Recognize and address the inadequate whistleblower protections afforded to UN staff. Institute zero tolerance for all UN officials whose conduct fails to meet the highest standards of ethics and integrity, and apologize to Mr. Compass. From the US State Department, demand the above reforms from the UN. Demand zero tolerance for and call for the removal of all senior UN officials whose conduct fails to meet the highest standards. Recognize that UN staff are not adequately protected from retaliation for reporting sexual and other abuses by peacekeepers or UN personnel. Seek amendments to the UN frameworks for the administration of justice and whistleblower protections, as detailed in my written statement. Implement the provisions of the US Consolidated Appropriations Act 2016, Section 7048 on whistleblower protections. And ensure that the next Secretary General is committed to eradicating sexual abuse in peacekeeping and is committed to protecting whistleblowers from retaliation. Finally, I would like to emphasize that my motive for testifying before you today and for blowing the whistle on the abusive authority and the sexual abuse is to protect the UN as an institution and to uphold the principles on which it was founded. This has come at a considerable personal sacrifice. I lost my job at OHCHR, but I remain hopeful that the High Commissioner for Human Rights will reinstate me in my position I hope that my testimony today will not impact on the High Commissioner's decision. Thank you.
11: Great. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Cardin and the other members of the committee for inviting me to appear before the committee today. I serve as President of the Better World campaign, which works to promote a stronger relationship between the U.S. and the United Nations. As the previous witnesses have made clear, there is a cancer within the United Nations and it must be cut out. The scourge of sexual exploitation and abuse by UN peacekeepers continues. The victims of this abuse are real and the consequences are as well. Just two weeks ago, a 16-year-old girl was allegedly raped by a peacekeeper from DR Congo in a hotel room. What a sickening violation, not only of an innocent girl, but the trust placed in that peacekeeper by the United Nations and the military that sent him to help the people of the Central African Republic. Hearing the horrendous reports emanating from CAR, it would be natural to want to withdraw all UN peacekeepers before more damage can be done. But this basic instinct to protect needs to be balanced against the good that peacekeepers continue to do there. The UN mission has played a critical role in the conduct of free democratic elections which have led to the swearing in of a new legitimate President Committed to rebuilding the war torn country and to successful legislative elections, which just concluded a few weeks ago. Since 2014, peacekeepers have trained nearly 200,000 children on avoidance of unexploded ordnance, a macabre gift left by the warring factions in CAR. As a result, Human Rights Watch issued a report which indicated that the UN peacekeepers in CAR will be critical to disarming rebel factions and reestablishing security. So the question is, how do we support the vital work being done by UN peacekeepers in CAR and elsewhere, and at the same time, implement meaningful steps to stop sexual exploitation and abuse by peacekeepers and ensure justice for victims? If the UN is to root out bad actors, whether they hail from France or the developing world militaries that are the backbone of UN peacekeeping, it must show that new policies just announced by the UN and endorsed by the Security Council will be implemented with unshakable resolve. The name and shame list issued by the Secretary General of countries charged with exploit- sexual exploitation and abuse is groundbreaking. For the first time in the history of UN peacekeeping, transparency is now, at long last, at the core of the UN's response to SCA. Secretary General Bond has suspended payments to troop contributing countries whenever there is credible allegations against one of its troops. He has repatriated entire military contingents to their home countries where there was evidence of widespread and systemic abuse, again, a first. Though long overdue, these actions are the right course. Even so, and even though they are endorsed by the Security Council, these measures will mean nothing unless they are actively and consistently enforced, a posture that will anger some troop-contributing countries. Sending home offending contingents is not only a black eye on the global stage, but a loss in important compensation to that contributing nation. And for those countries where there is evidence of widespread or systematic sexual exploitation abuse, they should be blocked from joining new missions. The UN must say no on deployment until demonstrable progress is made. The Secretary General has the power to do that, and he must wield it, and the Security Council must back him up. There are certain to be consequences. One year from now, for example, the Security Council may choose to intervene in a country facing a crisis. With lives on the line, the international community will rightly look to the UN to quickly deploy peacekeepers. Only a few countries will offer troops, and of those, some will have a checkered human rights record. While there will be justifiable demands to deploy a robust force, the UN must hold firm and reject any nation with a record of widespread or systematic abuse. As it stands, there is a severe shortage of well-trained troops for a growing number of increasingly complex and dangerous missions. The UN is challenged to recruit the best trained and equipped troops. If peacekeeping is to ultimately free itself from the stain of sexual abuse. The responsibility must not sit with the UN alone. Other member states need to answer the call. Last year's peacekeeping summit resulted in pledges of 40,000 more peacekeepers from a diverse group of countries. Ensuring these pledges actually materialize and that troops deploy to hardship posts such as CAR and Mali will be instrumental in backing up the UN's denial of certain countries over their records of sexual exploitation and abuse. In conclusion, it is absolutely shameful that it took the high profile sexual exploitation and abuse cases in car and elsewhere to grab the world's attention to this crisis and to pull open the curtain to the culture of impunity which exists in UN peacekeeping. The UN and members of the Security Council are now seized with developing and implementing solutions to this crisis. We have to make it right because we have no other choice.
0: Um, I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. Thank you you both for your testimony. Dr. Brown, if you could briefly, um, could you share with us why you are are at present uh, not employed?
10: Um, I believe that the reason my contract was not renewed was out of retaliation because I'm a whistleblower. Thank you.
5: Let
0: me, you you said something that uh, I think we may have missed an opportunity with the last panel to pursue as much as we should. But you said that 70% of the abuses actually take place by civilians that work directly for the United Nations. Is that correct?
10: Um, that's my understanding, and I think it would be useful to, to check with the UN on that statistic. Um, and if so, I, I would suggest that all of the measures that are being applied to the troop-contributing countries should also apply yeah. to the 70% to to the UN staff as well.
0: Mr. Yot, do you... Do you agree with the order of magnitude uh, taking place at the civilian level with direct employees?
11: There are definitely cases where civilian employees are engaged in cases of sexual exploitation and abuse. The 70% figure strikes me as high, but I look forward to working with you to figure out how that number was determined. Uh, But I also agree with Dr. Brown's recommendation, which, which, which is any tools used to investigate charges of sexual exploitation and abuse involving the military personnel and police contributing countries should also apply to civilian um, employees. Now, I, I
0: would think that you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about you know, the sovereignty, if you will, and the countries dealing with their own, but the fact is we should have spent more time, we're doing it now, just on the civilian side itself. I'm looking through a list, and um, I may not be catching every single one, but I think I, I could be. Uh, It appears to me that in every single case relative to civilians that I have access to at present, uh, here's one with suspension, but in almost every case, uh, it's a pending issue. Can you share with me why that would be the case and not yet adjudicated?
10: Um, I can't. Comment on on this figure, but obviously my perspective is that there is a lack of accountability inside the UN, just as there has been for the troop contributing countries, and that does need to be addressed.
0: Let me ask you this: I mean, why why you're out in the field? Uh, uh, you were out in the field. I know Mr. Yo may have a different perspective, but what is it at the UN that would cause? them with their own employees that work directly for the United Nations to tolerate this and to not be more forceful in ensuring that this is not happening?
11: I think that one thing to consider here is, is that this is the level of attention that is now being paid to sexual exploitation and abuse not only by police and military contributing countries but also by the civilian is unprecedented in part because of the horrendous situation that's coming out from CAR. So we as a major 22% contributor to the regular budget of the UN and 28% to UN peacekeeping need to insist that any employee of the UN be uh, absolutely subject to the same forms of discipline and dismissal and justice as we are insisting upon police and, and uh, troop
0: contributing countries. If I couldn't before Dr. Brown responds, why wouldn't that just be the case? I mean, I- I mean, just naturally, why is it that the United States needs to apply pressure on the U.N. for the U.N. to want to prosecute people who work for them who are involved in sexual exploitation? I mean, I don't get it.
11: You know, um, I think there's a couple of factors at work here, um, none of which justifies it, which is one factor is that so many of the appointments within the UN system are derivative of specific countries wanting to place particular employees. And so that creates this member state politics within the UN system, the 193 member states, that sometimes makes it uh, difficult for member states uh, to want their employees to be punished. That's not an excuse. uh, But I think that the dynamics is sometimes at work and in a very unhelpful and um, wrong way.
0: And that's the same thing that occurs on the troop side, right? I mean, they have member states who don't want uh, actions taken against uh, their their own military personnel.
11: For sure. In the case of our troop-contributing countries, it's a little bit more specific because they specifically will not contribute troops to UN peacekeeping missions if they do not have total control of the discipline of their troops. Mm -hmm. So if we insists that uh, all discipline cases be adjudicated jointly for instance between the UN and the troop contributing countries then in fact many nations that are currently the backbone of peacekeeping may choose to withdraw. That may be a price that we have to pay and then the Security Council will have to figure out uh, in a more systematic way how do we get more countries into UN peacekeeping that actually can Uh, make sure that their peacekeepers carry out their work in an ethical and principled way. Mm -hmm. Uh, To do otherwise is unacceptable.
0: Dr. Brown, your perspective, why why does this culture exist and and, uh, why would the UN be reticent um, to, to deal with it?
10: I hate to say it, but it reminds me a little bit of the child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. I think that there's only now been a realization of the problem at the senior levels in the UN. There's been cover-ups. I hope that that this sudden exposure will result in changes. But there needs to be some structural changes, particularly in terms of reporting. Because at the moment, you have multiple conflicts of interest at multiple levels. And just collecting the information is problematic. Uh, the, The human rights officers in the field often face pressures on them not to report. Or, for example, you know they may, they're having to report, in the case of, of UN staff, they're having to report on their colleagues. They may have to report on their supervisors. The structures are not in place to prevent them from receiving retaliation. Most of them are junior staff on short-term contracts. Their contracts could be suddenly not renewed. They could be transferred out of the location. There's no incentive for them to report in a way to, for them to report on their colleagues, there's no, there's no protections. And then following on from that, the internal structures, for example, the Office of Internal Oversight Services lacks independence. There are, there are so many problems in relation to accountability within, within the UN. Now, I, I think these, these problems can be addressed. I, I really do. I think they can be addressed, but there needs to be recognition first, and that's what I'm calling for. There must be recognition by the UN leadership that there are internal problems that have to be fixed, including in relation to obviously these abuses that are being committed by UN staff, but also protection for the staff who report the abuses, Hmm. be it by UN staff or peacekeepers.
0: Uh, My time is up, but are you telling me that um, with this report that came out in 05, which apparently was somewhat earth-shattering at the time. Are you telling me that leadership at the United Nations has just become aware of this problem?
10: No, they have not just become aware of this problem, but rather like the Catholic Church, it has taken them some time to actually act on it. I hope that they're going to act on it, but they must do so.
11: I think the other challenge is for sure the highest levels of the UN have known about this, even before 2005. So the issue of whether UN officials knew about sexual exploitation abuse and were taking action, as Ambassador mentioned earlier in her testimony, there is ongoing dialogue for over a decade between the United Nations and troop-contributing countries about ongoing cases of sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, But I think it has taken this this case to break it open and get this high-level commitment. I think the other thing to consider here is, The U.N. Security Council for over a decade on both Republican and Democratic administrations has been pushing for increased peacekeeping missions, increasingly complex, larger missions. And as a result, when when the U.N. comes back and says there aren't enough peacekeepers in the system, um, there's a real tension between do we approve larger, more complex missions when we don't really have enough well-trained soldiers with appropriate command and control to carry out those missions. it's not simply a case of one individual in the UN running the whole operation. The Security Council has been well aware of this situation for over a decade and yet continues to approve larger and more complex missions despite the fact that there aren't enough troops in the system. It's complex.
0: Thank you both. Senator Carn.
1: Well, let me thank both of you and Dr. Brown, I listened to your last comment and your prepared statement, I can assure you that uh, we take the integrity of our hearings pretty seriously. So we will um, very much appreciate your you being here and uh, will um, protect the integrity of our committee process. So thank you for your participation. Uh, I looked at the information provided to us by the United Nations, at least from their public website. Uh, they show one civilian um, episode in 2016, Uh, and then in 2015 I did some quick math and they showed 14, which would be about 20%. Now, I I don't necessarily believe these are accurate numbers, don't get me wrong, but uh, when you replied to to Chairman Corker that we should ask the United Nations, I'm not sure we're going to get today the right numbers, I just don't know if that's available uh, to us, but we will try. Uh, I just uh, had a conversation with my staff and I agree with Senator Corker and we're going to be asking the first panel some additional questions for the record uh, dealing with the United Nations accountability for particularly the civilian issues. There's two parts to the United Nations responsibility. One is how they in fact supervise the activities of the participating countries. Uh, what they do with the TCCs to (laughs) watch their conduct. So it's not just a matter of of sending them home. It's a matter of making sure they don't do wrong when they're in theater. And that's that's a a supervision responsibility which falls with the United Nations. And yes, we want to take action against countries that are not responding correctly, but there should be accountability within the United Nations itself. Secondly, there needs to be uh, certainly responsibility uh, of the United Nations to clear give clear direction to its civilian workforce as to what is expected to give them uh, adequate training but to have adequate supervision so again to so that the conduct is clearly understood and zero tolerance is clearly understood and of course if there are violations that there's accountability accountability not only in removing those individuals but holding them responsible for their actions. And that may very well uh, require the United Nations to have arrangements with its way that it employs its personnel uh, to make sure that there's accountability um, uh, for their for their activities. So I, I will be asking those types of questions of our first panel in an effort to try to see how we can uh, complete the circle here, because I think you do raise a very valid point of. It's fine to say that TCCs aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing and they should be removed and and I agree with that. But There's also the primary responsibilities with the United Nations and those responsible at the United Nations for how these missions are deployed and supervised, et cetera, and how the civilian personnel uh, are expected to behave and uh, making sure that in fact they do carry that out or held accountable. So I guess my point is this. Have either one of you seen actions taken to deal with what I just said? Is there, is there a, a clear direction uh, given by the United Nations on the civilian personnel? Uh, is there clear supervision? Is there clear training? Is there uh, clear ways of being able to uh, get the information on those who are violating so that they can be removed and held accountable? Uh, Is there a clear line of of responsibility and accountability from the United Nations to the civilians that are in uh, these uh, countries in which we have uh, the U.N. missions?
11: Uh, Two quick thoughts, which is, um, first of all, I think it's important to note that the Secretary General did remove the head of the uh, U.N. mission in CAR when these allocations uh, and charges first came to light and I think that's exactly the type of accountability that was long overdue and necessary and will hopefully send a signal to future military and civilian commanders that when um, missions that are under their supervision, as you said, they are responsible for making sure that the troops of the various contingents are actually performing their duties in an ethical and principled way. If they fail to do that, then they need to be dismissed from their job. And in the case of Central African Republic, that did occur. Second of all, in terms of the civilian employees, uh, civilian employees that are deployed to all of these missions receive extensive training about sexual exploitation and abuse, human rights training. But um, as the previous panel indicated, training is not a substitute for appropriate supervision of work. And so in the case of civilian employees, uh, we need to ensure that The people that are at the highest levels within each individual mission uh, are fully responsible for the actions of their employees and at the earliest possible moment that allegations are raised of sexual exploitation, that they are reported to the right authorities within the UN system and action investigations are taken and in fact the new immediate response teams that the UN has established to make sure that within five to 10 days that the actual evidence of crimes related to sexual exploitation and abuse are preserved um, uh, is deployed in the case of both civilian and military employees, so I couldn't agree more.
1: We know that historically within military command there's always been a challenge and particularly colleagues reporting uh, misconduct. We, we know there's stark problems, and we've tried to take action to deal with that. On the civilian side, Dr. Brown, is there the same type of inherent problems on reporting colleagues misconduct?
10: I believe so, yes, and I think there's the added, I mean, there's a number of other problems. For example, um, pr- prosecution would require the lifting of immunity of the staff. Um, also, The way the the system is currently constructed, it would require the UN's Office of Internal Oversight Services to investigate. And we're talking there about the UN staff investigating other UN staff. There are inherent conflicts of interest within the system that will need to be addressed.
1: So So with, with the immunity, in other words, they're immune from criminal prosecution in the host country?
10: In theory.
11: Uh, but I would also like to make it clear that the Secretary General, in writing, has made it quite clear that no UN employee who is subject to sexual exploitation and abuse, uh, if they have diplomatic immunity, it will be waived. Most civilian employees who are deployed as part of peacekeeping missions actually do not have diplomatic immunity. But in, that, in either case, the Secretary General and the UN's team has made it quite clear that diplomatic
1: immunity but will not. knowing knowing the, the countries in which the peace missions are are situated, the capacity there to deal with these types of issues are limited.
10: That's correct, and, and, and I think, I mean, going back to the point of, of the investigation itself, we have an inherent problem because you have an, a, a UN investigative body investigating possibly quite a senior official in a country. You, you have an inherent conflict of interest there, which you still have a conflict of interest with, with in my view, with the UN's Office of Internal Oversight Services in investigating a TCC, a case of TCC, or, or, or the, the discipline and conduct unit investigating it, or even the human rights officer investigating it. But when it comes to actually UN staff, it's, that conflict of interest is exacerbated, and I think that will need to be addressed. Yes. Along with the, if, if I may, along with the problems inherent in the reporting lines themselves, because there are multiple barriers to this information moving up up the chain.
2: Well, the
1: the questions I think I would ask when I ask from the United Nations, we don't have the right people here, is that what capacity do they build in countries where there are UN peacekeeping missions to be able to have the capacity to prosecute those who violate the laws in those countries on sexual exploitation and abuse? Um, That would be an interesting point to see how the United Nations is helping the country be able to uh, hold accountable. Uh, those who violate their, these laws. Or these
11: employees need to be repatriated to their home countries
1: and, and subject prosecu- to prosecution yes. at home.
11: Yes. So there needs to be prosecution either in-country, which is often
1: a challenge, mm-hmm. or back home. But if for civilians it may even be more complicated.
10: Correct, I think so.
0: I mean, just back to the pressure, Mr. Yeo, you were talking about earlier, where you've got these expanding peacekeeping needs that are complex. Um, you got pressure for more of that to occur. Um, I mean, I, I look at the types of populations, generally speaking, that are being, quote, protected. Um, I mean, is there some institutional disrespect for the types of people that? these peacekeeping missions are being sent out to protect. Is there something there that we need to understand?
11: I think the disrespect that occurs is between individual soldiers and the disrespect that as a result of the the individual actions they're taking, uh, the crimes they're committing um, as a peacekeeper. But having visited many different UN peacekeeping missions around the world. I am on, honestly shocked by the willingness of these peacekeepers to serve away from their homes for sometimes months, years on end, protecting people they don't even know. Um, and they're doing it at great personal risk when you look at, for instance, the peacekeepers in Mali that are battling back terrorist elements in Mali. There's been dozens of peacekeepers killed there. Three French peacekeepers were just killed yesterday in Mali. So. It's a complex situation. I think most peacekeepers are absolutely committed to civilian protection. We had a wonderful American um, who was deployed to South Sudan as part of a peacekeeping mission, and the military showed up at the gates. They demanded that he turn over all the young men in the camp, and he absolutely refused. He stood in the gates, and he said, you may not come in. And as a result, the people that day were saved, Uh, and of course, You know, He, from my perspective, is a hero for saving that. I recently was in South Sudan. There are 200,000 people today living in these camps that largely owe their lives to the fact that we have peacekeepers from around the world guarding these camps, trying to do their best to protect the people inside who would otherwise be killed by other elements within the country. So it's very complex. I don't think there's a culture where they don't wanna protect the people they're supposed to protect. I think this is a case of, individual soldiers doing wrong, and they need to be punished for it.
0: Let me ask you this, based on that, what you just said, and are we, do you think, today in this hearing, getting an unbalanced view of this issue?
11: No, I don't think so at all. I think that what what has happened in CAR, what's happened in Mali, and what's happened in terms of sexual exploitation and abuse in these other countries is absolutely horrific, and it gives the entire concept of UN peacekeeping a bad name. This hearing is absolutely well-timed. It needed to occur, and most importantly, it needs to occur a year from now and two years from now. This is not gonna be fixed overnight, and we need to make sure that there's bilateral and multilateral pressure for years to come so that 10 years from now, we're not looking back at this era and saying, well, we did—you know—we worked on this 10 years ago. 10 years from now, UN peacekeeping needs to be the model for how this, I know this is something that Jane Hall Lute who has been appointed by the Secretary General, and as you know, is former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, is looking at what is, the, what are the best practices for training and command and control to make sure this. How can we borrow from militaries around the world, including the United States, to make sure that we can work with the countries that are the backbone of, tr- of peacekeeping to improve their performance? It is a long haul, and it's going to require a lot of bilateral and multilateral pressure, and no, the hearing is not unfair.
0: Well, let me, let me just ask my question again, because of the disrespect that I was talking about is you have the hierarchy at the United Nations that has these complex missions, as you mentioned, and needed, needs more in the way of peacekeepers, and yet are sending out countries that are known to have... Um, problems I'm sorry where as Senator Isaacson mentioned in many places I mean rape is certainly uh, you know an act of war it's part of war I was just in the Balkans it's unbelievable to to know what and see and understand and meet women uh, who were dealt with there in that way it was an act of war it was part of war so back to the disrespect I'm referring to I'm talking about not the soldiers, I'm talking about at the UN level, is there a, a sense uh, that there's just so much in the way of need that, uh, and these populations, so what? Um, is, is there something there that, that, that I'm missing?
11: I think there was acceptance of this low-grade, what was viewed at the time as a low-grade ongoing problem and that acceptance. Um, uh, extended for years on end, not just by the highest levels within the UN, but by the UN member states, including the members of the Security Council. I don't think that acceptance is there any longer. If you look at what's new, as a result of what has happened, we actually see for the first time ever, military units being repatriated. And you have for the first time ever, a policy endorsed by the Security Council saying, no more units may be deployed if they are have a track record of systematic abuse, or they've refused to get back to the UN as to what they've done in terms of discipline, or they refuse to investigate. This is first time they've done this. This is new, and we need to ensure that it's enforced so that units from DR Congo are not deployed in future peacekeeping missions unless they fundamentally change the way they do business. It's gotta change, and the UN is now committed to that. It's been endorsed by the Security Council, and I think the acceptance of these practices um, I think is over.
0: Dr. Brown. Um,
10: if I may, I mean, I agree entirely with what Mr. Yeo has said. I would just add that the UN has failed, from what I can see, to accept that it itself has a problem, and that's what needs to happen. There needs to be a recognition that itself, need, it needs to reform itself. It needs to recognize that it doesn't have the accountability structures internally, um, and most of the measures that apply to the TCCs must apply to the UN, and furthermore, the staff who take great risks in reporting this sexual abuse must be protected. And we've had this terrible case with Mr. Compass, which has just sent a chilling message through the system, and that must be rectified. Otherwise, we're going to find that people, will, staff will simply not report.
1: Senator Carmen Well, I want to thank both of our witnesses. This has been very helpful to us, but it really starts with the recognition that sexual exploitation and abuse is not acceptable. And it has to be uh, carried by by the top leaders. So it starts with the top leadership at the United Nations. And it has to be not just understood by everyone in the leadership of the United Nations, it has to be enforced by everyone in the the hierarchy of the United Nations so that they understand that, that it's different than it's been in the past It uh, doesn't mean people in the past didn't look at it as serious but the institution didn't look at it as serious and that has to change and uh, it, it's it, but it requires a cultural change and without that you're not going to get the type of uh, act, action that we want to see and the action we want to see is that the member countries that are participating in the United Nations understand that that cannot be tolerated. So their leadership impresses upon their participants that this will not be allowed, and that if you are involved, it's going to be very severe, and that you're bringing disrespect to our country's participation, and jeopardizing our standing, and we're not going to allow that to happen, and it's not allowed that's what you're gonna have to have for there to be the type of change that we wanna see occur. So, yes, we've seen some encouraging signs. You've mentioned some of the encouraging signs, including the passage of the Security Council Resolution. But uh, we're far from declaring that uh, that has been accomplished in the culture of the United Nations. That's something that is still a matter that many of us are concerned, whether that message is clearly being Uh, broadcast the way it should and that's something that we're going to continue to follow in the meantime I expect we're going to take some additional action in the Congress. We
0: want to thank you both. It's uh, been a very powerful hearing and um, I I think that your testimony, I hope that your testimony um, is going to end up affecting people in that hopefully um, thousands of people who otherwise would have been sexually abused, raped, whatever will not have that experience because of people like you who've been willing to testify in this manner. I I, want to build on what you just said. I mean, in essence, um, because the United Nations is providing peacekeepers that in some cases, not in every case, are sexually abusing people, um, our citizens here who work hard every day to raise their families and, and pay taxes Uh, They're basically sending money, sending their hard-earned money to an organization that has been unwilling to deal uh, with a crisis within it, and that taints America. It taints the taxpayer money that we're sending, and I hope that somehow, uh, very soon, the leadership of the United Nations will understand that the American people Through their elected representatives, are not going to stand for us sending money to an organization that is unwilling to deal with this moral depravity that's taking place there, but not being willing to own up to a problem and deal with it in an appropriate way. So Again, we thank you. Um, We appreciate uh, very much your time and your travel. Um, The record will remain open through the close of business Friday, and if you could respond fairly promptly to questions, my sense is you'll want to do that. Uh, We thank you again and with that uh, the meeting is adjourned.